Yerba Buena Center for the Arts was founded in 1993 in order to be the cultural anchor for San Francisco. Their work at YBCA expands through cultural art, performance art, film, civic engagement, and public life. As a cultural center, it focuses on the fact that arts and artists are essential to social and cultural movement, like water is to our existence. So by fostering and supporting artists, you're supporting a more equitable, well-rounded, and healthy life for all. YBCA is reimagining the role that an art institution can play in the community it serves. Jonathan Moscone is the chief producer at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, and we thought we would end our theater and film series with an interview with Jonathan Moscone. I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yee. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. Michaela, have you ever walked down 3rd Street and on the left, right across the street from the SF MoMA, there is a huge art center called Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. Have you ever been there? I have always wanted to go there, Jay, like always, because I've walked down 3rd Street a lot to go to the SF MoMA. That was pretty much the first museum that I saw coming to San Francisco, and it's one that I frequent. And I also Mm. frequent the Garden across the street that has the Somovar tea house. And yes, what a gem. Oh, it's so peaceful and quiet in the atmosphere. And you're staring at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, just wondering, it, there, it breeds so much curiosity about what's happening over there, just from looking through the doors and seeing art installations that are kind of poking out. And yes, I have always wanted to go, but haven't. Susan, I know that you have been to YBCA many times, right? Not many times, but I have been. I, I've, I saw a dance there. I saw my mother speak there in a, in a panel oh, discussion. Cool. That was cool. Yeah, it was oh, really wow. super cool. Yeah. And I've seen theater there as well. So I really love it. But what I really love, I love where it's located. I love that Yerba Buena Center for the Arts is located right there in Yerba Buena Gardens. I love that SF MoMA, like you, is just across the street. I love that MOAD is next to SF MoMA. I love that the Contemporary Jewish Museum is across the street from YBCA. And the Mexican Museum is going to go in relatively soon. So that oh, kind wow. of... Really? That whole like little corner there, which is a kind of a big corner, is really turning into an art hub, and that makes me super happy, and that's super cool. I had no idea there's a Mexican museum that's going in. Yeah, me yeah. neither. That's yeah. really cool. That is yeah, it's cool. super cool. I'm looking forward to this interview because it's always great to find out how someone's career has developed and is still developing. Jay and Susan interviewed Jonathan Moscone about the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in November of 2021. I'm Jonathan Moscone. I am currently the chief producer of Yerba Buena Center for the Arts here in San Francisco. 
Okay, great. Now tell us about your theater journey. How did you get started in theater and what brought you all the way to YBC? I started in theater in high school at St. Ignatius College Prep out in the avenues. Wow. Uh, it was my way of getting through high school with a community of people who were just uh, all accepting of just everybody. It was a pretty wonderful respite from the kind of difficulties of being a teenager in an all-boys school. Uh, I had gone to a grammar school that was uh, co-ed downtown near Chinatown called Notre Dame de Victoire. Certainly after my dad died when I was a freshman, it was even harder. So being in the theater was the safest place I could be. And so I never lost hold of that. I also loved every aspect of the experience of building a set, acting, Eventually, I went to college and graduate school for directing because I wasn't really that good of an actor. I was a ham and I loved having people look at me, but I wasn't really good at it. But I was good at understanding what was working and what was, wasn't working in the way a, a piece moved. So I put myself to the test and got a graduate degree in directing from Yale School of Drama. It's called the David Geffen School of Drama right now because he gave a lot of money, but I, as a Yaley, will not say that. So I went to the Yale School of Drama. And since then, I worked professionally in theater. I was the associate director of a theater in Dallas called the Dallas Theater Center, which was their equivalent to our ACT or Berkeley Rep. From there, I worked nationally, started to develop an independent career, and then came out here to run what was called then the California Shakespeare Festival. And then I changed the name with the board to California Shakespeare Theater in Orinda, California, which is in the East Bay, a beautiful outdoor theater, probably one of the most magnificent assets of the Bay Area, and built my chops up of how to make Shakespeare relevant to people now by bringing in different people who hadn't made Shakespeare before. So it was sort of there where I, I grew my activist chops to understand how you can change the narrative by giving other people who haven't told the narrative the chance to do it. That's so, so cool. And that from there, the theater, I think, thrived very well, both critically and commercially. And so I was really proud of that. And I ended my tenure at f about 15 years in, which was, a, to me, about as much time as you should spend running one thing. And then I moved over to San Francisco to join the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. I started there because the, the CEO, Deborah Cullinan, was a close friend and colleague who had just left the Intersection for the Arts which was an, one of the venerable alternative arts organizations in this city. She took over this big place, Contemporary Arts Center, and she was trying to transform it into something rooted in civic engagement and engagement in general. And so I moved over to that place to work for her and have been there for the last six and a half, seven years. Wow, that's yeah. so great. Yeah. So now my art and my activism are kind of built into the same role. And I've started to grow that even beyond my work at YBCA as I've joined the board of the Chinese Culture Center oh, wow. in Chinatown and the Lorraine Hansberry Theater as well. That's fantastic because we just interviewed Margot Hall. The lovely. Yes. The she, amazing Margot Hall. She, yeah, she's on. Yeah. She's fantastic. Yeah. And I, I joined both of those for the, because of the leaders. Yeah. Jenny Lung, who yeah. is the executive director, and Margot Hall. That's wonderful. Wonderful. So for people who don't really know 
how thriving and interesting and fantastic Bay Area theater is. Can you give us a little snapshot of the different theater companies and what their personalities are like? Sure. And I'm going to have to default to pre-COVID times because a lot haven't come back quite as as the way that they had been before. But it's a pretty interesting ecosystem here, I think. It's not like Chicago or New York, just in terms of numbers. It's just greater than any other cities in the country. Mm -hmm. I think LA is right behind them. But San Francisco, for its size, and the Bay Area is probably a better way to look at it because San Francisco is only a component part of the Bay Area art scene. We have two very large theaters that are very different from each other, Berkeley Rep and American Conservatory Theater. How different they are is yet to fully be seen because they have relatively new leadership. Both the leaders of that organization have joined within the last couple of years. So they've, they've had a whole year, over a year, without being able to produce anything. They probably share more of a kinship of energy than, than in previous iterations when Carrie Perloff ran ACT and Tony Tacconi ran Berkeley Rep. Berkeley Rep was more of the kind of super liberal progressive place that also took shows to Broadway. Kind of an amazing paradox on some level. And ACT was more classically centered under okay. Carrie. Yeah. And now ACT is not in that same space. It's much more relevant, I think, to modern theater and has become even more so because of the dual leadership change there. Jennifer Bielstein is the executive director and Pam McKinnon, who is an extraordinary person and theater maker, one of the best directors I've ever experienced, is running that theater. And she barely got a season under her belt before we went into COVID. And Joanna Felser is now the artistic director at Berkeley Rep. And she has yet to even get get her feet fully rooted in, in her vision and manifesting her vision. But those are our two flagship theaters in terms of size and reach. But there are many, many other theaters. But it does kind of jump down economically pretty quickly there. It goes to, say, California Shakespeare Theater, uh, Marin Theater Company, run by Jason Minadakis. And he's a firebrand of an artistic director, has really kind of enlivened the scene in Mill Valley doing a lot of work that is very culturally relevant, diverse. He really kicks up a storm there, and I think he's great. Eric Ting at California Shakespeare Theater, they've gone through massive shifts because the money just shrunk when they couldn't perform, but he's an excellent director and also uh, has a great provocation around the relevance of Shakespeare, and I fully support sort of the path that he's going on. And then there's Shotgun Players in Berkeley. Patrick Dooley's been there for years, and they do kind of really wonderful, sort of sometimes agitprop theater, very innovative work. They hire really interesting directors who are in the Bay Area, mostly local. In San Francisco, there's the Magic Theater, which has uh, a new artistic director. My first job ever in the American theater professionally was at the Magic Theater back in 1993. I directed a play by Marlena Meyer called Kingfish about a man who has a dog and the dog is actually a box and he's really, really lonely and he gets seduced by the devil in the guise of a young man, a young gay man, which as I say, it sounds pretty funny and maybe not necessarily a play you'd do right now, but the man who played that role is Sean San Jose, who is now the artistic director. Oh my God, that's wow. so interesting. Right? Yeah, that's cool. And Sean, for many, many years, had been running and still runs Campo Santo Theater, which was a, a the theater program of Intersection for the Arts. The CEO of Yerba Buena is Deborah Cullen, and she ran Intersection for the Arts. 
Sean is bringing that same ethos, that company into residence at Magic Theater. I think he's going to shift that theater into a, a really extraordinary place where voices that have been thriving, but mostly in smaller venues can right. be given more central right. platforms. And I, I think it's going to be a really exciting time for the Magic, but again, yet to be seen because there he came on in the middle of COVID. So we'll see what happens soon. Margot Hall, uh, a small theater which has a great legacy and is the only black theater company in uh, there's black Berkeley rep, but there's not much going on in the scene from a black theater perspective. And Margot, who has been a major player in Bay Area theater as right. an actor, as a director, and sometimes as a writer and now as an artistic director. And when she got this job, I went to work for her as a board member because she had done so much for me as a director. When she acted with me at Cal Shakes and other places, she changed the way I made theater. So I kind wow. of, so it's so my, cool. my time to kind of support her vision right. of centering women and uh, feminine identifying playwrights, black playwrights, uh, and, and theater makers in general. So there's that, and there are a lot of all small theaters, I would call them more nomadic, that they don't necessarily have a full home. There's a lot of them in the Bay Area that are thriving, but also struggling at the same time because they're typically just so much smaller and not as resourced as they could be. Then there's San Francisco Playhouse, SF Playhouse, which Bill English and Susan Damiano run, and that's down off of Union Square, and that's a rock star of a theater. I mean, Bill is an intrepid producer. He's also a set designer. So they've an incredible visual aesthetic. They hire great performers from around the country, but mostly locally. And I think they are a really important part of the ecosystem. And they're kind of closer to sort of the tourist industry because they live, they, they're focused right. there. Is it their loca- location? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they do excellent work. A lot of musicals. And there's, I think, 42nd Street Moon. I happened to walk by there the other night which was in the old Gateway movie theater in the Embarcadero. They do musicals. I don't know their work very well. There are so many more custom-made theater. There's... Oh, my um, gosh. That's a great name. Custom-made theater, yeah. yeah. Brian Katz is the guy who runs that. And I am going to be missing... I'm going to remember them over the course of this conversation, some of the other ones. But it's not a heavy, middle-sized theater community. There's a, there's a couple at the top, and there's a lot of nomadic, a lot of small, very few mid-sized. And I think that's, that's where we have the hardest, that's sort of the story of San Francisco in general, economically. And yeah. it's sort of the story of the arts right. in theater. Right. It's the same. We, we, we reflect the culture. You know, in Chicago, there, the economy was such that many theaters could thrive in a mid-sized space in a way that's very hard in San Francisco to do. Yeah, that's, and we don't, we, we're not, our, our, this, for a city our size, we have a lot, but we're not a huge, giant city. That's right. We have that's a right. big city mentality, but we're not a big city. <laughs> that's right. We punch above our weight, for sure. For sure. That's a good way of saying that. Yeah. For sure. So tell me about your your journey with YBCA. My journey with YBCA has been just a really a dramatic shift in my life to go from theater making, 
which was really all I thought I knew, into community building through art. So it kind of shifted my perspective. And it's there that I met, you know, I've met so many more of the artistic leaders in the Bay Area, notably in San Francisco, outside of the theater, people in the visual arts, people in the other performing arts, like the ballets and the symphony and the opera. But that is a much broader community, so right. many more people. Yeah. And so you start to see a really much th more thriving ecosystem, dance, so many dance professionals that whom I've gotten to know. And they, 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 they thrive and struggle just as they do in theater, but they kind of compose a broader a broader sort of a broader universe it's almost like you're seeing a full picture of the sky as opposed to just one part of the solar system so being inside of that has made my learning so much greater and the ybca is focused on social justice through the art making and that has shifted also dramatically how i see the role of arts in you know moving the dial on issues that would be considered intractable in many, many circumstances, but we have found that artists, when given the opportunity and given the resource, have the capacity and ability to do some real change in their communities in a way that can lead to, lead to models for doing that around the country. So I've gotten really involved in city politics, which is really the least fun thing to be doing in your life, Susan, as you can imagine. <laughs> it's just not fun yeah, because it's, it's, a, it's a world. Right. It's a world unto itself. It's like you're going into a whole system. You don't know. But there is there are great people working in city government and in the arts policy realm. I joined the Grants for the Arts as, a, as their, the head of the panel to help recommend the annual general operating support for uh, all the arts organizations in San Francisco. Every arts organization, for the most part, is, is capable of applying for general operating support from Grants for the Arts. And general operating support is something that has gone far, far off the table for many organizations. So much funding exists for, for projects and initiatives, for things to do on top of just keeping your doors open. And uh, so I got involved in that. And I've been very close to uh, folks at the San Francisco Arts Commission. So learning about how how arts intersect with public policy has been one of my trainings that I didn't really know much about. I've gotten involved in, in supporting candidates, supposedly, not supposedly, uh, primarily, not for because they support the arts, because I rarely meet any person in government who says, I don't support the arts, right. but how open they are to innovative ways in which to solve some problems in our city. And I think that's where I, I find myself most attracted to the arts now is that they offer alternative ways to deal with really pressing issues. One of the ways I, I, I really fell for Jenny Lung at uh, Chinese Culture Center is how she gathered and rallied her organization to support artists who were working to fight anti-Asian hate wow. and violence wow. and, and using art and culture as a kind of instigator for, for addressing pain to help people heal and to take care of community. Wow. That's at the center of Chinese Culture Center. So that's why I've, I've, I've committed to that because I think that's when wonderful. I go through Chinatown 
And the more time I spend in Chinatown, I realize that's my San Francisco. And if, yeah. and if Chinatown fails, if Chinatown suffers, the city suffers. We suffer, yeah. We the suffer, whole city. right? And as somebody who grew up here, Susan, you yeah. know, that's like, that's ours. I know. That's ours. It's in the center. It's it's the center of our city, and yeah. yet it has it has suffered greatly, and it suffered greatly pre-COVID, and it suffered extremely much during COVID because yeah. it is a merchant center. Right. Right. It is an important business district with culture and art at the center. I also am committed to the Soma Pilipinas Cultural District, which is probably one of the most successful cultural districts in California. We've created a deep partnership with our colleagues who run the Soma Pilipinas Cultural District because they are our neighbors at right. Yerba Buena Center for the right. Arts. They are they center art and culture in the the, the investment in that's in their community while they work on, you know, making sure that the businesses thrive, that issues of immigration issues, legal issues are addressed for their community. And we at YBCA realized that not only have the, those community members for many years had to deal with the being displaced from the Yerba Buena district when it was built. And as were, as were so many elders, but they are also a thriving and essential asset that needs to continue resourcing so that they can continue to do the work that they do really well. So our job at YBCA is to be really good neighbors with them and to be in partnership with them and listen to their needs and do what we can to, to help build on their already successful investment strategies for their community. And the more time I spend there, which is the Tenderloin south of Market, I realize that's my San Francisco too, even right. though when we grew up, you didn't really hang out there. You didn't really go there. You know, you took the freeway. There was the freeway that took you to the Embarcadero. You could see it over to the side and you went past it. But it is actually our San Francisco. Yeah. And so we have to always think of these areas that look like someone else's San Francisco and realize they're ours. They're ours. We and have to take care of them too. They're our responsibility. Yeah. And so that's what my journey has been with Yerba Buena Center for the Arts is to be part of that journey, use the agency and power and creativity that I have been afforded. Right. And I earned it, but I was afforded a lot of it and use that to help bring power to those who have been doing the work for so many years. Right. And so when you see that, you realize there's so much possibility in the city. It is not, you know, I'm, I personally am exhausted and tired and bored by conversations of why tech is staying or leaving. Right. I couldn't care less right. myself. Um, Cause that's not my, I don't, that's not what, where my head is at. Right. So that is the dominant narrative. And it becomes kind of negative and sort of like the absence of they're moving out of San Francisco and going to Texas. Okay, well, that's because they're not going to pay taxes there. Yeah. That seems pretty obvious to me. <laughs> so there is so much that we can do without that. And there are people in the tech who are deeply invested in the city. So it's not like, it's not like tech is one big community that has one monolithic opinion about San Francisco that only serves them. Many are civically engaged. I think San Francisco suffers from stance politics, from stance beliefs that tech is bad, yimby, nimby, all this kind of stuff. Everything points at each other. We're a liberal city for goodness sake. I don't understand how we cannot get along as, as well as we don't get along. We are like the most successful city at fighting each other. I, I've never been in a small, and I, maybe it's the size, maybe it's the fact that we have the luxury of being liberal. I don't know, but it, it frustrates me. It annoys me. It's, it's not the narrative I live with. 
it's not the narrative I see really people who are making change happen live with. So we have to reclaim narrative and we have to take care of our city, all of our city. It's completely unnecessary to fight. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think the last time I saw you was at the opening of Moad. Yes. Right, which is, you know, again, Moneta White had never had a, a season, had, had never opened anything no. when she got the job. Right. And then she got to open this extraordinary series of shows. Really one of the best things. I mean, if you go there, you're like, oh my gosh. The work is, is incredible. It's beyond incredible. It's incredible. It is genuinely world-class, but it is rooted also in the Bay Area. Yeah. That's a brilliant, that's the it's, perfect it's, example of what I, what I love about this city. So you, we just have to, people have to go out to places and experience things and realize that actually the creativity in this city is the greatest asset. That imbues us with hope, optimism, passion, and hopefully a desire to act. Mm. Beautifully said. Well said. I think this is a good time to, to really talk about the project that YBCA is really working on right now, which I believe is called the Guaranteed Income, if you can speak about that. Sure. We applied for this pilot program through the city, through the Arts Commission. And while the the overall movement would be called universal basic income, for YBCA, we, we identified it as guaranteed income because it wasn't universal. We weren't at that space. We were in guaranteed income as a pilot to learn how this can work in centering artists and hoping, believing that if they were given the basic means to do, to live, they can do their work. And we then attracted the attention of Jack Dorsey and his Start Small Foundation, where we received over $3 million to continue and deepen and expand mm. the pilot. Wow. And so we have a team dedicated at YBCA, an incredible team, a rock star team, Stephanie Ma and Isa Villarosa, and, and of course, Deborah Cullinan and Penelope Douglas. These people are working so deeply on creating an investment structure for artists learn from it, identify all the data points of success and failures and concerns so that it can come perfected, so that we can model it, so that it can actually grow. Right. Because we, we believe, our, it's, this is a, based on a fundamental belief that artists are central to the work of building community. Right. The greatest investment we can make is in artists in service of community. There's been community investment for decades. A lot of it has failed. Most of it has never included artists. So our harp is to bet on the artist, bet on the creative people who, are, who will find a way to invest in their community. And that is when we do that, we think we, we actually can model that for others. So the guaranteed income pilot is something that we hope we can continue with and we hope it can continue to build the movement that's all around this country. We see it in all around this country, but we're a city that's investing in the artists doing it. That's what we're focusing on. That's where we're placing our claim. That's who we are. That's yeah. who YBCA is. Right. Right. All arts organizations invest in artists by giving them shows, by hiring them. That's fantastic. But we're trying to think of something that's more systemic, that can go longer, can go deeper, and really be an investment strategy as opposed to a one-time deal. Right. Not suggesting that one is better than the other. You need both. You need both. Right. You need you shows, need you need events, you need programs, but you also need investment strategies. And that's where we're starting to turn our heads. So we care as much about artists as we ever have, but we're acting upon it in a very deeper and more systemic way. That's, that's so fantastic. Yeah. So fantastic. It's 
it's amazing. It's really consistent with what you described about YBCA, what it's about, and affecting community through art. And I never thought of it that way. And it's just remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining Beyond the Fog Radio. I am so grateful to be able to talk endlessly, which is what I love to do. But it's especially to be with you, Susan. We go back so many, many years. We do. We have a shared history. We do have big Uh, shared history. I was telling Jay that I used to be mad at my mom because we wanted to ski with the Moscone kids. I was like, why can't we be in... in the, you, the, the, why can't we go to Tahoe? To, to, no, to Squaw. Oh, I was, to Squaw, I, yeah. We were at Alpine. You guys were at Squaw. And I was like, Oh, that's Squaw, right. The Moscone kids, they're going to, to Squaw. And my mom was like, Yes, and we're going to Alpine. You guys are in Husky, and you guys were in the other one. <laughs> uh, Mogul. Yeah, Mogul exactly. Mogul. Oh, she my. was like, The Moscone kids are in Mogul, and you're in Husky, and that's how it is. Yep, that sounds about right. That sounds like our moms. Exactly. This is just for my own personal interest. You mentioned Margot Hall changed the way you directed. Can you say a little bit more about that? When Margot acts, she brings every single part of her body and soul and mind into the experience. She is, people say, artist, activist. She's just Margot. Everything about Margot will call into question something that you're doing. She not only has an incredible aesthetic eye, she has a great political centeredness around things. And she understands the implications of any choice and how it impacts her and how it will impact her relationship to the audience. So she brings all of that to the room. When directing can just be, you think you're just doing, I'm just going to, we're just making a play. We're putting on this. We're doing that. Can you do this? She's showing, she mirrors back to you what you're saying and will challenge you not to be obstinate, but to get it to a place where we're actually making the most responsible and most creative artistic choice. And that's where Margot lives. That's who she is. So when you hire Margot and she says yes, which isn't always the same thing as hiring, you can offer Margot a lot and she will say yes to very few. It's because she trusts that she can have that kind of conversation with the director or any of the artistic team to make sure that the work reflects the breadth of impact that all creative um, expression has. And so that opened my eyes to not only my responsibility, but also to these other ways of communicating choice. You know, you're not just making an aesthetic choice that looks pretty. You're making a aesthetic choice that has a, an action, a, a political point of view. It has a point of view. It says something, it does something. So being aware of that has made me a better, deeper director. Yeah. I can hear that in what you're doing now. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you so much, John, for joining us. Thanks for your time. Thank you for your time. It's so important to really take the time to figure out how Life reflects art and art reflects life. They mirror each other and all happening at the same time. And it's really important to have these conversations in the first place. That's what I loved about this interview. Oh, absolutely. I always appreciated art, mostly from the standpoint of performing art. You know, I grew up as a Chinese cultural arts performer. I studied Chinese lion dance and I loved expressing myself through movement, but I never thought about art and the intersection of art and society and how art can provoke conversation, 
and impact society at large. I think it's extraordinary. And with the program that now exists with the YBCA guaranteeing income for artists, I believe it's called the San Francisco Guaranteed Income Pilot. I think it's extraordinary because art is what it's going to allow us to have conversation and it's going to alter society. And that really was a cool, delightful discovery out of our conversation. Now, Mikhail, we missed you. How, how was listening to the interview? I was astounded by what Jonathan Moscone is doing at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. I think the, yeah. the biggest part that you just touched on for me was obviously about paying artists and making sure that we have a living wage. We, I say we, because I'm an artist, you're an artist, where I feel like we're, as a photographer, I'm making art. And I think that that is very important and prolific here for San Francisco and just proves that San Francisco is trying to save artists. It's always been an artistic hub and sounds like they're paving the way over there to really make sure that we're taking care of our people. And also, yes, art is reflecting what's going on culturally. And when he spoke about how he is stepping up to the plate and, and really bringing the artistic movement back into Chinatown. Oh, I just, I'm kind of, you know, I'm speaking slowly because I'm just so at awe with what Jonathan is doing. And I'm, I'm really proud of our city. And speaking of taking care of our city, <laughs> we want to conclude our theater and film series with two iconic women, Flicka McGurn and Jeanette Etheridge, two women business owners of iconic restaurants and bars that are quintessential to San Francisco. They've been taking care of our city for a long time. It's a really fun interview, so join us for that. To hear that episode, you can listen to Beyond the Fog Radio on Google, Spotify, or Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. And be sure and subscribe. It's free. It doesn't take any time. And if you subscribe, it allows us to keep bringing you all of these marvelous interviews. <laughs> and then after you subscribe, make sure you go and follow us on Instagram and follow us on Facebook. We're at Beyond the Fog Radio. Thank you for joining us this week on Beyond the Fog Radio. And we'll see you next week. Until next time. Bye now. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Beyond the Fog Radio is created by us on Riverside.fm, as well as by Connor Chang, Tim O'Shea, Tim Johnson, and Arliss Hayes. Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2021.